Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to Genesis 28. We're returning to the book of Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis for quite some time. We're going to finish the book out, mostly looking at Jacob and Joseph's lives. Um, And then when we finish finish Genesis, we're going to study the book of Revelation. How about that? I'm going to be honest with you. I've been scared to death of preaching through Revelation. (laughs) But I figure if I can get through Genesis, we can get through Revelation. And so probably sometime around this summer... We'll pick up there, but I'm excited about that. Don't forget Operation Christmas Child, your shoeboxes. Um, if you took some, get them back, all right? <laughs> you got to bring them back. Uh, if you don't get them back tomorrow, you have to figure out how to get them to Samaritan's Purse, okay? So tomorrow's kind of the deadline. Just want to encourage you with that. I also want to thank Pastor Kelly. Didn't Pastor Kelly do a great job last Sunday? Amen. <laughs> And out at our campuses, our campuses are joining us this morning via live stream. Pastor Travis out there at Fellowship Olathe did an awesome job. And also uh, Pastor Ryan out at Reach Church got a chance to preach out there last weekend. And, and we're so blessed as a church. Uh, I like to be in the pulpit. I don't like missing Sunday. Uh, but I'm grateful that when I do, we've got great, great pastors who are able to fill in. This morning, though, Genesis 28 come to the life and the journeys of Jacob. Often in Scripture, uh, God describes himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, uh, you know, I, 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 some, I, I understand how uh, God would identify himself with Abraham. Abraham's the father of all who believe, and this great man of faith. I, I get that. I understand how God would be the God of Abraham. And, and and I understand how God would associate himself with Isaac, although Isaac is a bit more ordinary compared to Abraham. But Isaac, well, you get a clear picture of, of Jesus and Isaac. He is the, the child of promise. He's the child that's laid on the altar. And so I get that. But I struggle with God identifying himself with Jacob. But he does. And in fact, in some places in Scripture, God will leave out Abraham and Isaac, and he'll just say, I'm the God of Jacob. You remember the prophet Malachi, God speaking to the prophet. He says, Jacob have I loved. And, and this is somewhat amazing because you understand as you look at Jacob's life, the guy's a mess. I mean, his name means liar. That's what his name means. He's a li- his life is, is characterized by deceit and, and manipulation. And yet God says, I'm a God of Jacob. I don't know about you, but that gives me a little bit of hope this morning. That if God can take a deceitful sinner who's messed up like Jacob and transform him into a great man of faith, the father of a nation. If God can do that with Jacob, then maybe there's a little hope for me. Maybe there's a little hope for you in this. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to look at Jacob's life and how God met with this man and how God changed this man. In fact, God's going to wrestle with this man. Yet God's going to make him great for his glory. Do you know that today? That's what God wants to do in your life. That's what God wants to do in our life. He wants to make us great. The problem is more often than not, we don't want to be great. We just want to be happy, 
<laughs> I don't know about you, but most of the time I say, God, I love the greatness thing, but I, today I just won't be happy. And God wants us to find joy and peace in him, but more than that, he wants us to be great for him. And so he goes to work shaping us just like he does Jacob. So we're going to look at, at Jacob's life. Let me, let me give you a little bit of the context here. We're, going to, we're actually going to pick up the story in verse 10. You're going to have to do some work on your own. Uh, verses 1 through 9 are great verses, but let me just give you some context here. And for the purpose of time, we'll pick up in verse 10. But you'll remember Jacob and his mom, Rebecca. Uh, they have deceived daddy Isaac so that Jacob gets the blessing. I, um, interesting, Friday night I, I had dropped my phone. I had to get it fixed. So I'm waiting outside the store in my car on my phone to get fixed. And I'm listening to Ben Shapiro on his radio show. Listening to news radio. And, and you know, Ben Shapiro's Jewish. And he was talking about the story of Jacob and Esau. And I wanted to scream because he missed it. It's so interesting. He's like, the, you know, Isaac just decides that, that Jacob will probably be, although he's not very strong, he's moral, so he'll be the better leader. And I'm saying, no! God had declared it. This was God's sovereign choice. You remember the promise, what God had said to Rebecca when she was pregnant? The older's going to serve the younger. God in his sovereignty says, I choose Jacob. And so Jacob's been promised the blessing, but he's going to go about trying to get the blessing by deceitful means. And mama works together with him, and so they work the circumstances out, and you know the story. He gets the father's blessing. And then now they got a problem because Esau's ticked off. And Esau's a hunter. He's pretty good with a gun, you know? And so mama knows Jacob doesn't stand a chance. He's going to die. And so they got a problem. And, and it's interesting when you read the story, what should have Rebecca done? Rebecca should have just gone to Isaac and been honest with him. Listen, Isaac, we've messed this deal up, but now Esau's mad. We've got to send Jacob off. But what is she going to do? She's going to continue with her deceit and manipulation. You know, you, you, you come to realize that some of Jacob's deceitfulness, he comes by it honest. And mama's going to try to manipulate the circumstances and manipulate her husband to get what she wants. And so she goes to Isaac and says, we got to send him away because I don't want him marrying these Canaanite wives. And uh, Isaac goes along with it, I think, in his mind. If Padam Aram was good enough for me, then it's good enough for my boy Jacob. And he sends him off. And, and I think Rebecca, again, she probably thinks, boy, I worked this deal out pretty good. Guess what? It's going to blow up in her face again because, you know, When's the next time she's going to see Jacob? She won't see him again. She thinks, I'm going to work this situation out and I'll just be without him for a little while. She never sees Jacob again. Esau, it tells you about him and those verses there, and he's going to continue in his fleshly ways. But Jacob is now on the run. He's a man on the run. He's got regret in his past, fear and anxiety in his future, and he takes off. Let me pray for us, and then we'll work our way through this text. Father, we thank you for your word. It's so plain. God, I pray that you would help me to explain this text with clarity. We just confess to you right now, we need you, Lord. I've got nothing to say. Your word is perfect. 
So we ask you, Lord, speak by means of your spirit and your word this morning. Let it penetrate our hearts and draw us to yourself. Teach us more about who you are and who we are and how we interact with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, look with me, beginning in verse 10. It says, Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went towards Haran. Beersheba is in the south of Israel. Haran is the extreme northern part of Israel. It's about 130 miles straight line between Beersheba and Haran. So he's taken off on this journey. It's about the distance between Joplin and Kansas City. So he's taken off on this journey from Beersheba to Haran. And in verse 11, it says he came to a certain place. God's going to bring him to a place. I, I call it a place of despair. But he brings him to a certain place, and he spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. So here he is on this journey. It's known as the way of the patriarchs. And he's on this journey. And he gets one day's journey in. He goes about 50 miles. And you know, 50 miles in one day on foot, that's hoofing it, all right? He's taken off. I think he's really scared of Esau, his brother. He knows what Esau can do, and he is moving. And he gets about 50 miles in, and he stops off at this little barren place, this place that he'll later rename Bethel, the house of God. But at this point, when he stops off there, it doesn't look like the house of God. Bethel, physically, geographically, is a barren place. It's a windswept, desert, rocky wasteland. It's a miserable place to be. It's a dangerous place to be. It's hot during the day. It's cold at night. Just a desert wasteland. Now Esau, Esau probably, probably would have been perfectly content here. Esau is the guy who goes backpacking in the wilderness. But not Jacob. Jacob's a mama's boy. Jacob doesn't like camping. Jacob doesn't like backpacking in the wilderness. He likes staying home and cooking with mama. So while Esau might have been comfortable here, make no mistake about it, Jacob is not comfortable. Jacob is miserable. Not only is Jacob miserable, but he's sinful and he knows it. He sinned against his dad, he sinned against his brother. Most importantly, he has sinned against God. And now he's facing the consequences of his sins. He's sowed his wild oats and now he's praying for crop failure. You ever been there? Here's this rich, spoiled, pampered mama's boy. And he's now on the, the run with a stone for a pillow. You ever tried to sleep on a stone? I've tried to sleep on a backpack for a pillow, and that's not very comfortable. I can't imagine how uncomfortable Jacob is in this moment. He's alone. He's terrified. He's sinful. He's uncomfortable. He's miserable. That's Bethel. And my question to you this morning is, have you ever been to Bethel? 
Not, not physically speaking, but spiritually speaking, have you ever been to Bethel? A place where you felt lost, where you felt like you were all alone. A place where maybe you felt sinful, where you had let others down, you'd let God down. A place where you felt like all your life was a, was a failure. A place where, where God had put you in a position where you now had to belly up to the consequences of your sin. And the reality is, if you're human... And if God's going to do anything great in your life at some point or another, you've been to Bethel. Now, Elijah in 1 Kings 19, you remember, he achieves a great victory over the prophets of Bel at Mount Carmel. Great victory, and all of a sudden he learns that Jezebel's after him, and he runs off. He's a man on the run, much like Jacob, and he runs off into the wilderness, and he sat down underneath a juniper tree, and he said, I've had enough, O Lord, take my life, for I'm not better than my father's. Elijah says, I'm done, God. Just take me now. You ever been there? Job, in Job chapter 3, he said, cursed is the day that I was born. Job said, I wish I'd never even been born, like George Bailey. (laughs) I just wish I'd never even been born. You ever been there? You remember Peter? Oh, I guarantee you Peter had been there. Peter said, all these other losers, they might betray you, but not me. I won't do it. But you remember the, the final time that he betrayed Christ. Scripture tells us that Peter and Jesus did what? They locked eyes. And Peter ran off and wept bitterly. I have often thought how miserable Peter must have been on that night. As I was studying this passage, I'll tell you what, I've been there. I remember one time um, just the circumstances weren't going well. You ever have a bit of a pity party? I've had a few of them in my day. And I I was just upset. In fact, some of the circumstances I had brought upon myself. And I'm taking a walk, and I'm just walking along. And I step in a pile of dog mess. You you know know the moment. You've been there. And you step, and it's just the smell. And you know what you've done. And, you know, you lift up your shoe and you think it's all in the cracks of the treads. And I thought, well, this pretty much sums it up right here. That's about it. God, you, uh, the picture is coming through loud and clear. Now, Charles Spurgeon said to his congregation on one occasion, I pray that you never reach the pits of depravity and wretchedness to which I so often descend Spurgeon had been there if you journey with God for any length of time some some point or another you're going to come to Bethel a place where you run out of yourself and you descend to the level of your own abilities and you you realize you realize you're not a very good savior you're not as strong as you thought you were you're not as smart as you think you are I wonder what Jacob prayed about on that night as he began to lay his head down on that piece of stone and 
here's a mama's boy. I bet he missed mama. And boy, I, I think he had some deep regrets. Have you ever been in a place where you, you just prayed and you wished for the life of you that you could go back and undo something you did, but you knew you couldn't? He got regret behind him. I bet he is wishing for the life of him that he'd have just been honest so that he could be back at home with his mama. He's got fear and anxiety in front of him because he doesn't know what the future holds at this point. But he, he knows this. All his support is gone. And he is scared to death. A place of fear and loneliness and depression, regret and pain. And what does God do? Well, look at verse 12. He had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending upon it. So he sees this ladder, and Derek Kidner in his commentary says it's probably better described as a staircase. That's the way I like to picture it. A staircase that's from earth to heaven. And angels. I thought this week about those airport escalators, you know, where you got just cram-packed people going up and cram-packed people coming down. And I just pictured it in my mind with this staircase with just a, a, a thoroughfare of angels ascending to heaven and a thoroughfare of angels sent down to minister to Jacob. Do you see the contrast, though? The contrast between what Jacob is physically experiencing in his life and what is actually occurring in the spiritual realm. Jacob thinks, I'm all alone. I got no hope. I am a goner. And God is saying to Jacob, I know right where you're at. And I have an infinite amount of divine resources ready to minister to your every need isn't that powerful you think you got nothing I got everything I know where you're at and I'm ministering to you second Kings chapter 6 Elisha Elisha he's made the king of Aram really mad because Elisha keeps telling the Israelite armies, where uh, the Aramean army is so that they can avoid them. The king of Aram realizes that Elisha's telling them what's happening, and so he sends the whole army to go kill him. Take him out, just wipe him out. And so they, they send this army of men. The king sends these arm, this army to, to kill Elisha and his attendant. And so Elijah and his attendant, they're, they're down in Dothan, not Dothan, Alabama. They're in Dothan. In the, in the Middle East, and, and they're, they're at Dothan, and they come down, and, and his attendant, Elisha's attendant, gets up in the morning, and I just picture him kind of walking outside the tent, and he's just stretching out, you know, and he looks out, and guess what he sees? We're completely surrounded by a group of people that don't look real friendly. They don't look happy to see us, and he realizes we're about to die, and he panics, and he runs back into Elisha and tells him, we're dead. And do you remember what Elijah says to his attendant? Essentially, calm down. 
he says there's more for us than there is for them. Now, if you're that attendant, I'm probably thinking, you, you done lost your mind. You haven't seen what's outside this camp. And do you remember what Elijah says? God, open his eyes. And the attendant looks out and sees an army of horses and chariots of fire. Guess what Elisha was learning? What that attendant was learning is that when things look the bleakest, that's often when God is his closest. You know that story of Elisha, Elijah, when Elijah was in despair, oh God, just take my life. Do you remember what happens? Do you remember what great piece of wisdom God gives to Elijah in that moment? He comes to him and says, take a nap. <laughs> you know, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap, get some rest. And Elijah goes to sleep and he wakes up and the angel of the Lord cooks a meal for him. Isn't that a powerful picture? That God knows Elijah is vulnerable. He's in a desperate place. And God is so tender with him that he cooks a meal for him. And Elijah goes back to sleep and he gets back up and he cooks another meal and says, Take, eat, for the journey is too difficult for you. And guess what Elijah was learning? He was learning that when the situation is the toughest, that is often when God is his most tender. This is the most important part of a Bethel moment. Is understanding the presence of God. And I know we, we, we get prayer cards during the week. Many of them are submitted by you watching online. Some from you that are here. But church family, can I just tell you, it's overwhelming. We distribute those amongst our pastoral team. And because we receive those prayer cards, I know that a lot of you are going through a Bethel moment right now. I know some of you have parents right now that are dying all alone in a hospital room and you can't be there. And you feel like the situation is hopeless and you feel all alone. And worse than that, you worry that your loved one feels all alone. Some of you, I know it, in the midst of all this COVID, your marriage is hanging by a thread. And you're at a Bethel moment. Here's what you've got to remember. Even though you may not feel him and they, even though you may not see him, God is there. His presence is real. He really is Emmanuel. He is God with us. So here in this moment, Jacob is overwhelmed by the, the presence of God in his life. But then God also reminds him of his promises. Look at verses 13 through 15. Then behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I'm the Lord, the God of Isaac, and the land on which you lie. I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants also will also be like the dust of the earth, and you'll spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be, be blessed. 
Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. So powerful. And by the way, you should, that, that, that promise right there, those promises should be pretty familiar to you because they're the same promises that God made to Abraham, same promises that he made to Isaac, the same promises that he made to Jacob, the promises of land, seed, and blessing, they're all there. But he speaks them to Jacob at this moment because whenever you're going through a trial, whenever you're in a Bethel moment, you've got to know two things. You've got to know two things when you're going through. These are the two things I've got to know when I'm going through a trial. Number one, God is with me. That there's more for me than there is for them. That God is with me. He will not leave me. But the second thing I need to know is that God is sovereign. I don't, I, I, I don't know about you, but I don't want to hear that God's not in control and life is just a bunch of circumstances. No, I want to hear that God's behind the wheel. And he's in control of this deal. And even though it might not seem like, like it right now, he's got a good and perfect plan and he will fulfill his purposes and his promises. And that's what he's saying to Jacob in this. Jacob, it may feel like the situation is bleak, but I made some promises to grandpa and I made some promises to daddy and I'm making them to you and I will fulfill them. And all your goof-ups, just like with daddy Abraham and Isaac, all your goof-ups and all your messes and all the circumstances in life will not keep me from fulfilling my purposes. So Jacob, I'm going to make you great. Now I'm going to have to drag you along sometimes kicking and screaming. But I'm going to make you great. That's my promise. Now, I, my life verse is being confident... Ver- uh, Philippians 1 6 being confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus I love that verse because it reminds me that God started the work of salvation God's carrying the work of salvation along and God will complete the work of salvation meaning the goal of that work is to make me look like Jesus now that work won't be complete until the day of Christ Jesus but God promises he's going to complete me that's his promise to me And some days, I go kicking and screaming. But he's going to perfect me, not because I'm good, but because he's faithful. Do you know what God is saying to Jacob right now? Even when you are faithless, I am faithful. And I will fulfill my promises. Then we see the praise of Jacob Verse 16, then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. The Lord was here, and I didn't even know it. It, This is probably the last place that, that Jacob expected to meet up with God. And you need to know today, no matter what your circumstances are, it just might be that God is there, and you didn't even know it. You remember the disciples, Jesus sends them to the other side of the sea and they get in the boat and they're in the boat and the storm comes up and they're scared to death and Jesus is doing what? He's sleeping because he ain't worried about it. But they're scared to death. They go wake him up. Don't you care about us? Jesus speaks to the winds and the waves. Hush, be still. Everything's calm. And then it says the disciples are really scared. And what do they say? What manner of man is this? In other words, we had God in the boat and we didn't even know it. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior in the storms of life, listen to me, 
you don't have God in the boat. You've got him in your heart. And he will not leave you. God was in this place, and I didn't even know it. God was working here, and I didn't even know it. Look at verses 17 through 19. He was afraid. <laughs> See, that's what happens when you start to understand that God is real. He's alive. He knows your name. He knows everything you did, and he loves you anyway. He's afraid now, and he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. The gate of heaven is a neat phrase there. We don't have time this morning, but you want to see something really neat, go to 1 John, or John chapter 1, I believe it's about verse 16. Jesus meets up with Nathanael, and you remember he comes to Nathanael, and he says, a Hebrew in, him, in whom there is no deceit. Do you know that word for deceit is Jacob. And it says, Jesus says to Nathanael, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. And most commentators believe that the fig tree is the place of meditation. Most commentators believe that Nathaniel potentially was under the fig tree thinking about Bethel and the staircase to heaven. And he was wondering, what is the staircase to heaven? What is the gateway to heaven? And Jesus says to Nathaniel, and pretty soon you'll see the angels ascending and descending on who? On the Son of Man. Jesus is saying to Nathaniel, you've been pondering who is the Messiah, who is the gateway to heaven. It's me. I'm the way to God. Well, that's a side note. That's a bonus. All right, moving on. So Jacob arose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. And he called the name of that place Bethel. However, previously the name of the city had been called Luz. So the stone under his head becomes an altar for worship. <laughs> it's amazing that, that we believe and trust in a God who's able to take the places of pain and turn them into places of worship. And I know that many of you could give testimony today uh, of situations and circumstances and trials in your life that you wouldn't wish upon your worst enemy. But in your life, you wouldn't trade them for anything because you know how they've deepened you in your walk with Jesus. So God is transforming this pillow of stone into an altar of worship. And in verses 20 through 22, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. And you, you begin to see here what God is doing in Jacob's life. And we'll continue to see as God puts him in circumstances and situation, he's molding him and, cha and, and changing him. But we see here that God brings Jacob to a place of worship. He's now worshiping. He sets up an altar. You remember dad, uh, grandfather Abraham, when he sinned, what did he do? He set up an altar and he worshiped because of the faithfulness of God. And Isaac, when he sinned, he set up an altar and he worshiped God. And now Jacob... Jacob has sinned. He's had his own personal encounter with God, and he sets up an altar. Do you know that up until this point, Jacob has never mentioned the name God? It, well, he's mentioned it one time. You know the one time that Jacob has mentioned God? He deceived his father. He brought back the, the bowl, made the bowl of soup, and he brings it to Daddy. And you remember what Daddy says? How would you get this stuff so quickly? And what did Jacob say? God did it. 
he lied. In other words, he took the name of God in vain. That's the only time he's used God's name up to this point. But now God has changed him. Now God has brought him to a place of worship. This blasphemer has now become a worshiper because of a Bethel moment. Not only has he become a worshiper, but he's deepened his faith. And we know this is what the trials of life do. They deepen our faith. It's, it's the, the principle of the New Testament. What, what does Peter say in First Peter? Uh, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now, if necessary, for a little while you're enduring various trials, knowing the testing of your faith being more precious than gold, even though refined by fire may, be result of, to found, may result to be found in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says this, this trial you're going through, it's just a little while. And you know what God is doing? He's deepening your faith. That's what he's doing in Jacob's life. It's James chapter 1, in this you greatly rejoice. What does he say? If you encounter various trials, knowing that testing your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God is using the trial to refine you, to draw you closer to himself. You know, when we, were, when we lived in Alabama, Faith and the boys, they loved to go to the beach. Um, me, I used to say the beach just give me a sunburn, throw sand in everything I own, steal about $2,000 from me, and we'll call it even, all right? That's the beach experience for me. I've grown to love it. It's a blessing. But, but one of the fun parts when we go to the beach, Wyatt, you'd take him out to the ocean, you know, and you'd walk him out there, and, and you'd get him out in the waves. At the front end, he's holding my hand, and he's just walking next to me. But the deeper you got, what happened Man, you go a little ways in, and now he's grabbing my leg. And you go a little further in, and now he's wrapped around my waist. I get out waist deep, and now he's wrapped around my head. I can't even see. The deeper the water, the more he clung to me. Do you know what God is doing in the trials? The deeper the trial, the more we cling to him. See, it really is true that you'll never really know that God is all you need until you come to a place where you realize God's all you have. God is drawing. And and he brings Jacob to a place of commitment. (laughs) And the commitment to me reminds me of the patience of God because if you read the commitment, I don't know about you, but when I read the commitment that Jacob makes here, it makes me cringe because what does Jacob say? God, if you'll do this, if you'll do that, if you'll do this, if you'll do that, then you'll be my God. I mean, he's bargaining with God. He's a good businessman. But I don't know about you, but I read that, and if I were God, I'd say, sit down, buster. You don't tell me what to do. I tell you what to do or you die. How about that little deal? But God doesn't even respond. God just says, Jacob, all right, brother, come on. We got work to do. But the picture there is God takes Jacob just as he is. I bet later on in Jacob's life, he looked back upon this prayer and said, boy, that was a dumb prayer. You ever prayed dumb prayers? Well, I prayed some dumb prayers. But aren't you glad in those prayers God didn't just strike you dead? He said, that's okay. We got work to do, and we'll carry you along. 
What are the takeaways from this? Number one, you're going to come to a Bethel moment. If you've not already been there, you will be there. Because God's in the business of making you great and drawing you to himself. So sooner or later, you're going to come to the place (laughs) where you run out of yourself and you realize you're not a very good savior. When you come to that moment, you got to know two things. you got to know his presence and you got to know his promises. God is there. He's there. You may not feel it. But we don't live this Christian life on the basis of our feelings. We, we live this Christian life on the basis of the truth of God's word. And God says, I'm there. And you've got to know his promises. That he really does work all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. It may not feel good right now. But you've got to trust and know that God is in control and his purposes are good. And the greatest promise that he's made to us is that one day I'll carry you home. And every trial in this life truly is temporary because if you know Jesus, one day it'll end and you'll be with Christ forever. And then finally, let me just say this. Well, a couple things. Number one, figure out a way to put down some memorial stones in your life to remind yourself. You and your family, I think this would be a great, I've been thinking about this in our family. How do we do this? That they would often put up these memorial stones. Why would they put up memorial stones? So that when they walked along, they'd see those stones and the kids would say, Dad, Daddy Jacob, why is that there? And boy, I bet every time they walked past that altar, Jacob couldn't stop but getting emotional and say, let me tell you about how good God is. Do you have some memorial stones in your life that remind you of the faithfulness of God to you and to your family? And then finally, Jacob can't exist on the faith of his dad and his father. Jacob had heard all about God from his dad, from his grandfather, about what God had done, but all he had ever heard was what God had done in other people's life, but he never had a personal encounter with God. And listen, your mama's faith won't save you, and your daddy's faith won't save you. And your Sunday school teacher's faith won't save you. Sooner or later, you've got to have your own personal encounter with God where you realize you're not a good Savior and you can't save yourself and you run out of yourself and you trust in Jesus and him alone for salvation. Do you know him today? He's there in the Bethel moments of your life. George Matheson Great Scottish preacher. He was known as the blind preacher. Early on, he began losing his sight. He's a brilliant man. Could have been anything. Could have been anything he wanted to be, but he gave his life to ministry. I'm going to become a preacher for God. But he continued to lose his vision to the point that he eventually became blind. He had a woman in his life that he had hoped to marry, and she left him. She said, I just don't think I can marry a blind man. His sister became this huge help to him in his life. She helped him throughout his life, helped him scribe some of what he wrote. But she was getting married. And so on the night of her, before her wedding, he said he went to his cottage, his parsonage, and he said he was just struck with deep despair. He said he was brought to a place of deep anguish and loneliness 
that everybody that he'd really held dear in his life, he was about to lose. And all of a sudden, he said, I began to write. He said, I've never had it happen before, but it was as if God just spoke directly to me. He said, I didn't have to go back and correct it. He didn't know rhythm, but he just put the words down. The words were this. Oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe. That in thine ocean depths, it might richer and fuller be. A love that will not let me go. Praise God for the God of Jacob. And the love that will not let us go. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love. Your deep love that you demonstrated on the cross. God, I pray if there's anybody here this morning that doesn't know you, maybe they're in a Bethel moment right now, but they've never trusted in you. And maybe you're using this Bethel moment, this trial, this storm, this circumstance to bring them to a place where they realize the depth of their own sin. God, I pray that in this moment, they would realize that somebody really big loves them. The God of all creation is a lot closer than they think. And I pray that they would run to you. I pray that they would trust in Jesus Christ and him alone is the only way of salvation. And they'd know your freedom, your forgiveness. And they'd have a personal relationship with you. God, for those of us that do know you, I pray whatever place we find ourselves in today, no matter how difficult, no matter how bleak, no matter how lonely, we would be reminded that you are there. God, open their eyes so that they could see that there's more for us than there is for them. And remind them of your promises. That what you started, you will complete. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.